Take your Bibles as we return to our series in 1 Peter. We'll go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4, looking at verses 12 through 19 this morning. It's good to be back with you. We were gone for a couple of weeks. It was an enjoyable uh, trip. It was warm, very warm. Uh, But we had a good time and are glad to be back. Uh, Next week, we are looking forward to a baptism service. We haven't had one of those in in a few months. Um, We'll have two candidates that we're planning on baptizing, so be looking forward to that, be praying about that as we uh, move forward and look forward to that service. And I want to wish our fathers a happy Father's Day as well. We're grateful for you, grateful for God's work in your lives. God has designed for men to be leaders in their homes, to be godly, loving leaders, and we're grateful uh, for our God who demonstrates what that looks like. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll be in verses 12 through 19 in just a moment. Just a couple weeks ago, my family and I spent a good part of Memorial Day on a hike. This is something we like to do occasionally when we can get to it. We enjoy being out in the woods together. And we found an appropriately challenging hike that we thought looked pretty good, that would be fun to do together. It was a nice trail. It wound its way along a nice creek. Um, There was all kinds of things that we were able to see. It ended with a river at the end of it, which we were able to wade in once we finally reached that point. As we walked, we actually ran into one of our fellow church members, and we were able to talk to him for a few minutes and his children. And as we went through the path, we noticed several points along the way that kind of stood out. There were three bridges, small bridges that we crossed, and we even found some very large snails that caught our attention that were climbing up trees they were they were huge we hadn't seen something like that before now on the way back since this was a new trail to us there were a couple of forks in the road and again since we hadn't been this way before we had to figure out now which which way do we go to get back we weren't exactly sure which fork to take but when we spotted those landmarks those bridges and the tree with the snails on them we knew we were going in the right direction. Landmarks function as an encouragement along the path because they reassure us that we're headed to our desired destination. In this text, Peter is providing us with a landmark, something that gives us encouragement to know we're going the right way. It's a test. That test is often unpleasant. It's suffering. Peter returns to this subject of suffering. And yet, this landmark, suffering, can help us grow in our confidence in our God. Peter's going to tell us that suffering is exactly what God intends and designs for his beloved children. They're not a mistake. They're not an accident. They're not something he's lost control of. And they shouldn't come as a surprise for the Christian. They serve to remind us that we're following in our master's footsteps. So let's look at our text this morning. Verse 12, this is God's word as he speaks to us again this morning. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, 
that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That is at his second coming. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And here is Peter's conclusion. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's ask for God's help as we consider his word together. Gracious God in heaven, we come before you confessing our need. We need your help to clear our minds. To focus again on your word. To hear carefully and accurately what you're saying here. Lord, we in our circumstance, we don't like, we don't enjoy, we don't relish the thought of suffering. And yet this is a word for us this morning. This is a word of encouragement and of warning to prepare us of days to come. So Lord, give us grace to see, give us ears to hear your word, to respond with humility. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning encourages us that when you face suffering, choose. It's a choice that you can make. It's a response that you're to choose. Choose to deepen your trust in your faithful God. In this letter, Peter is seeking to answer how are Christians to live In a society that grows more and more hostile and opposed to the gospel. Opposed to Jesus Christ. How should Christians respond when they find their beliefs and biblical values more and more out of step with their friends, their co-workers, and their neighbors? Well, this morning in this text, Peter's going to urge us to respond in several ways. I want you to look back down at your text and note that there are several things that we're not to do and then several other ways of responding that we are to do. If you look carefully, you'll see that there are six commands listed in our text. And we'll organize our study this morning around those six commands. First, don't be surprised by suffering. Rejoice. Verse 12 says again, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening. Peter begins this section with tender words of care. Listen to that address. He says, Beloved. He calls these believers in the churches, these five churches, dear friends or loved ones. Peter cares deeply for them. He wants to encourage them as they face hardship and adversity. And this direct address sets that table, doesn't it? Though we have friends and extended family that we care very deeply about, we have a unique and special love for our own children, for our own parents. This word beloved communicates that uniqueness, that depth, that significance of a familial relationship with God. That's not an accident. It's a reminder. It's a signpost. 
It's going to help inform all that we're going to see about suffering. God's not doing this to you. He's doing it for you. So even in this first word of the passage, God intends to communicate his care for us. As he addresses this difficult topic for believers, the Lord encourages us with his love. And now comes that first command. Do not be surprised. As Christians, we've heard plenty of things about suffering. Peter talks about suffering a lot. This is the third major time he's addressed it in 1 Peter. And yet, we still find it surprising, don't we? Peter encourages his readers in this text that suffering is certainly part of God's design for our lives. To believe that being in God's will means that you'll be free from trials and suffering is simply not biblical. Where could you find that? That's the problem with a prosperity gospel. It misleads people. It deceives. It says you're to live your best life now. No, that's not true, Peter says. This is the worst you will ever have it on the timeline of eternity. It only gets better from here. And this moment is but a pinprick on that line stretching into eternity. Don't put all your eggs in this temporal basket as if this is what really matters. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Being in the center of God's will may mean that you are right in the midst of suffering. And yet we're surprised by how it often feels very unfair. It's fine to address suffering in our minds theoretically, but when you're entering into it, we struggle. It feels unfair. It feels this isn't right. This can't be from the hand of a loving God. How is this love? We're surprised by God's purposes in our trials. But Peter tells us that God sends them in order to test us. Don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you. Now the fiery trials that he refers to is really a reference back to what we saw in chapter 1 verses 6 and 7. There we're given a picture, a metaphor of a fire that heats up metal in order to purify and refine it. To purge out the dross. Peter says don't be surprised but we are. See, from our perspective, we don't need trials. Certainly, God could use something else to get my attention or to help me grow. Certainly don't want them. But our Father, in His wisdom, sends us opposition and hardship in order that we might grow in our reliance upon Him. How is this testing valuable? First, it proves that you are His own. This is a landmark, a marker, that this is what happens for Christians. It what hap- it's what happened to your master. Second, it proves that he loves you and is working to help you grow and become stronger. Remember back in 1.6, Peter wrote, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, two key words that are really helpful, if necessary. Now, who determines if your trials are necessary? Who has the right, the authority, the wisdom to determine such a thing in your life? I want you to think back over the last six months. What hardships has God allowed into your life? Maybe there's one that jumps to your mind right away. 
Maybe it's a series of little things that have just been nagging at you. What hardships has God allowed? Well, Peter is saying that you can rightly conclude about every single one of those circumstances that God in his wisdom chose that trial for you because he deemed it necessary. In his love for you, as your wise heavenly father, he deemed that you needed that hardship in order to grow. He's committed to your growth. Peter tells us to view trials as coming from the hand of God. When you face an unexpected car repair, a friend betrays you, as you face heartache from a parent or from your child, as you deal with unmet expectations, as you look at a world that is changing, as your country is devaluing what you value, devaluing your God, saying they're opposed to you. Don't grieve over that as if this is surprising. Certainly there's grief involved in that, but don't be surprised by it. Don't conclude that God's lost control. This is an opportunity to trust again. God's not against you. God's not against his people in this. You're loved by God, and he intends to help you grow through these things. The fourth stanza of the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, captures the truths of verse 12 well. It says, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace, all sufficient, shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. In verse 13, Peter continues. He goes on to say something that is absolutely strange and foreign to the way we naturally respond to hardships. He says, he commands us, don't be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice. Now, I want you to pause and think back again on Peter's life. Understand, he's not saying this in some cold and sterile setting. From a place where he's not wrestled with this personally. First Peter has a lot to say about suffering and then glory. Right? Those are the two main themes we've seen again and again in this book. But those are important themes to Peter particularly. Because that's going to be a major part of his story. So he speaks to us from deep experience. Remember, this is the disciple that rebuked Jesus when he began to tell the disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem to suffer and die. Peter said, no, that can't be. I don't want that to be part of your story or my story. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This is the disciple who denied Jesus three times in order to avoid suffering for Jesus. In those moments, he didn't want to be identified with Jesus, associated with him because of what it would cost him socially, even physically. Finally, when Jesus restored Peter, his final command to him was, follow me. And that command came right after Jesus said, you will die just like I did. I I died. In these verses, we have an instruction from a follower of Christ who was very well aware that this is the path. This is the way of a Christian. But how are we to rejoice knowing that trials and suffering are a part of following Christ? 
Well, first, this isn't an encouragement for Christians to seek out suffering. The Bible never tells us to do that. Nor is it teaching that we're supposed to just stoically endure it, grit our teeth and just get through it. So often that's usually our response. Just get me through this. Let's, let's get it over with. And certainly we're not to find pleasure in it itself. But we can rejoice because of what we know God is doing with our suffering. How he is working through it. Paul writes in Romans 5, 3, and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope, confidence, trust in our God. James encourages us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials knowing that the result will be endurance and greater maturity in Christ. But what specifically now does Peter want us to keep in mind as we face hardship. First, we can rejoice in trials because they lead us to deeper fellowship with Christ. Notice he says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That idea of share is a participation. It's the word we we translate as communion. It's fellowship. To share in his suffering doesn't mean we suffer the exact same way that he did. Our sufferings will never be substitutionary for another person's sins. But when we suffer on behalf of the gospel, we join with our Savior. We're united to Him. We're encouraged that I am on the way of my Master. And He is with me every step of the way. As the gospel was advancing in Jerusalem at the beginning of Acts, we've referred to this before, but it's so helpful to remember the specific wording Remember how the apostles faced persecution for preaching. We read in Acts 5, 40 and 41, the Sanhedrin called the apostles in. They had them flogged. They had them beaten. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then the apostles do something strange. They left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They recognize what Christ had endured for them and they're saying, I get to be a part of that. One Christian speaker offered this thought experiment. Suppose in the next few years, it begins to cost something in this country to be a Christian. Suppose that for every insult, every slight, every smear on social media, every friend who turns his or her back on you, Because of your Christian witness, every time that happens, suppose you respond by smiling and thanking God for the privilege of displaying the glory of Christ, rejoicing that you are counted worthy, you are aligned with Him to suffer for His name. Now, how might that shape your confidence in God if you had that view, if you took on that perspective? How would that shape this church family? over time if instead of recoiling or fighting or being bitter or angry or hiding how might that strengthen us how might God be pleased to use that kind of unique gospel witness in the lives of those around us God tells us in Philippians 1 29 through the pen of Paul it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but to suffer for him this is the common Christian experience. 
Again in Romans 8, 17. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings. In order that we may also share in his glory. Paul's saying if Christ's path was suffering and then glory, it's your path too. Suffering should not be surprising. But should be viewed as a helpful landmark on our way as we follow Christ. We can also rejoice in our suffering, Peter says, because our trials will lead us to greater joy at his coming. That's the second half of verse 13. He says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad. This is exceedingly glad when his glory is revealed. It's clear evidence that we're his and this will prove itself true when he comes again. Thirdly, we can rejoice in suffering because of the specific presence of the spirit of god given to us in the midst of trials peter almost certainly has jesus words in mind as he thinks through this idea of suffering we're told though that we have the presence of the spirit with us as we go through this hard time god doesn't leave us or abandon us in fact we get to know him better as we turn to him He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That word insulted demonstrates that up to this point, the persecution for these believers is primarily verbal. And we see that encouragement. That those who are insulted by human beings are blessed by God. Do you see the perspective Peter's giving us? Will you respond temporally with temporal eyesight, very concerned about what humans think about you, or will you respond with an eternal spiritual mindset, most concerned about your fear of God, what God thinks about you, what he's doing for you and through you? Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you do you see what he's saying this is the pattern this is the way as we grow to love and value what god loves we will become less and less consumed with what others think of us And isn't that part of our struggle? Secondly, don't be ashamed in your suffering. Glorify God. Now in verse 15, Peter wants to clarify that our suffering should never come as a result of our sinful responses to hardship. Because Christians are still sinful people. When someone attacks us, we tend to respond strongly, wrongly at times. And Peter's saying, don't respond this way. As human beings, as sinful sinful humans, when opposition comes, we've said that we respond often in three different ways. We fight, we flee, or we try to fit in. We hide. And I believe Peter's emphasizing here that we're fighting against it. There are strong responses. He's warning believers against a radical reaction. And it doesn't seem to fit the context to understand that Peter is actually saying that there are those in these bodies that are murdering people or stealing. 
I think this is a rhetorical device. Seems best to read this verse as Peter telling believers not to overreact. Not to become a revolutionary. Not to think that if you change your circumstances or attack the specific people attacking you, then you'll fix your problems. Verse 16 then addresses another common human response to these pressures. We can feel ashamed. We can close our mouths when we know our Christian views and commitments are not popular. Isn't that a strong temptation for all of us? Maybe I just won't say anything. They don't need to know everything I believe, do they? I don't want to be offensive to anybody. Peter's warning believers not to renounce the name of Christ. Certainly there's wisdom in when to speak and when to be silent. But we must not close our mouths always. And if we never suffer, if this is the pathway and we never suffer, what might that mean? That's what Peter wants us to consider. Sometimes extreme pressure from a world opposed to Christ can cause a professing believer even to conclude that it's not worth it to follow him. And they walk away. Again, Peter knew this kind of shame for denying Christ. In verse 16, he urges us not to be ashamed of him, but to glorify God. Glorify him in knowing and proclaiming and following Christ. Now, do you see the help that Peter is offering here? We've talked about it a little bit already. Very often, our tendency is to fix our eyes on men, on humans, on the responses, on how we're being treated, on whether we're being affirmed or not. We worry about it. We become anxious. Our minds stir it up over and over again when we face opposition. We wake up in the middle of the night and stir that up. We go over that problem again and again. But consider the pattern that Peter is, respond, is providing. All of the responses that we are not to have are all, again, very horizontal, aren't they? There's surprise. There's aggression toward others. There's shame. But all of the responses we are to have are spiritually minded and can only come as we're walking with Christ in the gospel, as we're letting our values be shaped by his word. Their joy, it's worship, it's trust. You see, suffering uniquely tempts us to fix our gaze here on this life, on ourselves, on how we feel. Peter says the remedy is to consider what God is doing through your hardship and fix your gaze on your Christ. Now, what is happening in verses 17 and 18? What does it mean that judgment is to begin at the household of God? Well, we have to recognize the context as we seek to understand this. The thought here fits with what Peter is teaching about suffering. Judgment on believers in verses 17 and 18 does not mean condemnation for sin when Christ returns. It can't mean that. Rather, Peter is making a comparison in order to continue to encourage the believers. You see, persecution and suffering are a part of God's plan to refine and purify his people. And that's what Peter's explaining. This is seen all over in the Old Testament. That's what he's drawing on. There's passages in Ezekiel, Malachi 3. When God does a work of purifying or judging, he begins with his own people first. And Peter is saying, if believers are facing this kind of hardship at the hand of a sovereign God, how much worse 
will final judgment be on those who've rejected him. On those who've rejected the gospel, who do not believe it. There's a comparison, a contrast. Verse 18 is a quote from Proverbs eleven thirty-one. It does not mean that believers are barely saved, but that they must endure significant hardship. The Christian life is not easy. Following God comes with a cost. And again, it's a comparison. How much worse will the judgment of one under the condemnation of a holy God be? God uses pressure to strengthen his children, to purify and prune their lives. Spurgeon once told a story about the benefits of pruning. He said an apricot tree at our family's home was trimmed back so much, I wondered if the branches and leaves would ever grow back, let alone the fruit. But we ended up the next year having apricots coming out of our ears. Mom made apricot pie, jam, and we had it as fresh fruit. And still there was an abundance left for the birds. God's pruning work is often difficult and painful. But in his hands, it will always produce greater and more abundant fruit. Number three, don't despair in your, tr- in your suffering, trust God. As we come to verse 19, this is Peter's summary of the whole section. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust, there's the command, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This might be a good summary for the entire letter. Entrust here is a banking term. It means to deposit one's valuables someplace where you know it will be kept absolutely secure. This word entrust, Jesus used on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit or entrust my spirit. Peter's reassuring us that there's no more secure place for us as we face hardship and opposition than to entrust our lives, our anxieties, our cares in him. Are you doing that in your life right now? How have you handled the hardships God's allowed in your life this past week? Where have you turned? What hardships are you facing or will you face that you need to entrust to him? What fears or concerns is he telling you he's eager to hear from you about? Our God calls us to rejoice as he uses trials in general in the Christian's life and suffering for Christ in particular to spiritually strengthen his children. Peter's saying, don't think, don't ever think that if God really loved you, he would give you an easy and a comfortable life. Don't read your life through your circumstances and say they're hard, therefore God must not care or must not be paying attention. That's not the path. Suffering's a vital landmark for Christians as they follow Christ. What's happening to you is happening for you from the hand of a loving God. Now, I want you to see the comfort and grace that Peter is offering in this passage. Suffering offers to believers a unique opportunity to be drawn closer to their triune God. I want you to see all three members of the Trinity present in this text as Peter encourages these believers about suffering. In verse 13, we're told as we suffer, we share, participate, are brought into deeper communion with our Christ, firstly. Suffering highlights in a real way our union with Christ. 
In verse 14, Peter tells us that when we suffer, we're blessed and the Holy Spirit of glory rests upon us. The Spirit is with us. We receive the comforting grace of the Holy Spirit of God as we go through hardship. And finally, we're encouraged to trust in our faithful Creator, our Father. This is the only time in the New Testament the Father is called the Creator, the Sovereign One who's over all creation. And He's with us when we face opposition and hardship. So do you see the encouragement Peter's presenting to us? Following Jesus, yes, it will include hardship. It will include opposition. It will mean that if you're truly following Jesus, at some point you will be ostracized for what you believe the Bible says. You will be looked down on. You will be insulted. You will be in the minority. And that's okay. But suffering provides the believer with an opportunity to know our triune God in a unique and more intimate way. Suffering leads us to glory. It's his path for us. As you think through the different biblical characters in both the Old and the New Testaments, which one of them avoided hardship and suffering as they followed God. Can you think of one that had no hardships? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar looked into those flames and he didn't see three men, he saw four. The Lord Jesus Christ came to them and stood with them in those flames. When Stephen was being stoned for his faithful witness for Christ, he gazed into heaven and he was provided with a view of Jesus standing at the right hand of God. When Jesus arrested Paul's attention on the road to Damascus, what does he say to him? He says, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus takes the persecution of his children personally. He's with them every step of the way. He's so unified with you in your suffering that he feels them, right? When we stand for him. Church family, do you see how our suffering and hardships bring us closer to our God? They're not something to be afraid of, to flee from. They're a chance for us to entrust our souls to God. Paul Brand, a missionary surgeon to India, wrote in his book, The Gift of Pain, I have come to see that pain and pleasure come to us not as opposites, but as Siamese twins, strangely joined and intertwined. Nearly all my memories of acute happiness, in fact, involve some element of pain and struggle. One pastor from a century ago said, They who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And biblical scholar and author D.A. Carson writes, show me the Christian who has suffered very little and I'll show you an immature Christian. This is the path that we're called to walk. Suffering is a landmark for the believer that we're on the right trail. We're following our king. Last stanza of how firm a foundation reminds us. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, for rest, for confidence, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no never, 
No, never forsake. Let's close with prayer this morning. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the truths of this passage. We rejoice that we have the promise of your presence with us. That our triune God knows what we're experiencing in both his wisdom, his love, and his sovereign grace. He chooses the hard things for us. May we be convinced that whatever trial you bring on our our way, whether it's general difficulties of this life, whether it's specific suffering for being a Christian, Lord, we know that we can trust you. May you grow our confidence in you. Lord, we know that you whisper in our pleasures, as C.S. Lewis has said, but you shout in our pain. Lord, may we hear your voice in the hardships of life. May we not resent it. May we not resent you. May we not flee. May we not fight in response, but may we rest and trust and be encouraged in you and continue to do good as Christians, as followers of our Savior. May we be more convinced, may you drive our convictions deep, that you love us, that you care for us, that you're with us each step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.